Turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. While you turn your way there, I wanted to mention, I love what Brother Jim said. He said, this is the bulletin cover this uh, this month. And he said, isn't that exciting? What he didn't know, how many of y'all, let me ask this question. How many of y'all know what leftover casserole is? Anybody know what leftover casserole? You grew up, you grew up in a home with leftover casserole. What that meant is long about Friday or Saturday, you took whatever was left over and threw it in and made a casserole. Whether it tasted good or not didn't matter. You just had leftover casserole. Well, a lot of y'all probably don't realize this. When we buy our bulletin paper, it comes in packs of 50, or I'm sorry, packs of 100. So every month we go through two packs. But we don't have quite 200 bulletins that we make. We usually make, I don't know, about 165, 160, something like that. And so this is the cover. If you get one of the first hundred, if you don't, this is the cover because we did a little bit of leftover casserole this month. So you can call this the limited edition. All right. And uh, yeah, first come, first serve. So they might look just a wee bit different this month uh, from those. But if it's about the empty tomb and if it's about the resurrection, you'll know it's marches. Amen. So and uh, we'll have a new one that'll be all consistent next month. Second Timothy, chapter number two. And uh, I'll go ahead and admit to you tonight, this might be and I'm going to do a little preaching, but it might be a little bit more like some teaching tonight. Uh, but I, I had an interesting conversation I want to share with you before we get into the message uh, that sort of began to work on my heart about the need for this in our lives. Second Timothy, chapter number two. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 15. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, we'll read down to verse 18. The Bible says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in this place. Help us, Lord, to rightly divide the word of truth. May you be magnified tonight, Lord. We know that when we handle your word correctly and when we respond obediently that you're glorified and you're magnified, and that is one of the many ways in our life that we can give honor unto you and praise unto you. So help us tonight to approach the Word of God with the right spirit and attitude, and may it work effectually in our lives. Lord, if we'll be obedient, I know your Word is mighty to work. So let us have an open heart to the truth of it, and we'll be sure to thank you. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I love this passage of Scripture. Many of you, even upon just mentioning the the reference to it, knew immediately and could have started quoting this passage of Scripture before we even got there in our Bible. I'll admit to you a little bit of maybe a, 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 a maybe negligence is the right word. Hesitancy is probably not accurate. I don't preach on the pastoral epistles a lot, and part of the reason is because you ain't a pastor. <laughs> Amen. I read it a lot because, of course, I need it as a pastor. Uh, and it's not to suggest that there's nothing in the pastoral epistles that applies beyond the pastoral office. But certainly that is the scope and intention of the pastoral epistles. And I would say this, that the passage we've read tonight is pastoral advice for every preacher. Could you imagine the transformation in our nation 
If every person that believes sincerely that God has called them to preach made this the template for the way they approach the word of God. Could you imagine how it would change pulpits and change churches if instead of viewing the word of God as sort of a a cart upon which to carry our ideas, we instead viewed it as the the God-breathed, inspired, inerrant, preserved word of God that is our absolute authority for faith and for practice. Imagine if instead of trying to bend it to our will, we put our will under the subjection of its truth. Imagine what a transformation could happen. I'll tell you this, man, we ain't short on church buildings. And we ain't short of people that go and sit in church pews. And we're not necessarily, although there is a shortage of God-called preachers, uh, there are a whole lot of them that say they are that aren't, that are manning some of those pulpits. And you know, I've often felt that while I believe in church planting, man, we need to look at a church rescue ministry, Amen. Because there's so many churches that are languishing without pastors, uh, languishing without leadership and without guidance and without authority, uh, and are very just at the, at the cusp of closing their doors and calling it quits. And so I think what a radical transformation this passage could have if preachers would take it to heart. But I'm also reminded that it's not just the responsibility of the pastor to study the Word of God. If God wanted only pastors to have the Bible, he would have given it to only pastors. Men bled and died so that you could have a Bible in your lap tonight as we preach the word of God. I don't think it's wrong for a church to put scripture passages up on a projector. I don't think that's a sin against God. I I don't necessarily think God is grieved by it, but there is a trend that comes along with it. And it's sad. People just quit carrying their Bibles to church. And what a disgrace that is. I mean, listen, here we are hundreds of years from when they uh, burned Tyndall at the stake. And, and now people can't even be bothered to take a Bible into the house of God. What a tragedy that is. People died so that you could have a copy of the word of God. And the reason it's so paramount is, is you need to understand and know the truth of the word of God. So this is not just pastoral advice for every preacher, but this is practical advice for every believer. Told you a moment ago, I had a conversation with somebody the other day. They, they sent me a text message and, and this individual, they said, man, how do you study the Bible? They said, it seems like I just don't understand it unless you're explaining it to me. And they said, I just, I want to know how to study the Bible for myself. Man, there's not much thrills the heart of a preacher than to hear that. Uh, and they texted it to me and like, I don't know if you've seen my phone. It's basically a tin can with a string attached to it. And I was like, I can't text it all to you. I said, but get with me on Sunday and we'll chat for a few moments. And so me and this individual sat down. But it's good I couldn't reply in that moment because it gave me the opportunity to sit and think about some things that would help us to study the Word of God. I'll tell you the advice that I gave to this person, and then we'll get into the preaching of the message. But I told this individual, I said, listen, start with the narrative portions of the Word of God. Start with the stories of the Bible. Now, it's history, it's accurate, it's, it's impeccable. But understand that it's going to be more approachable to read stories in the Word of God. And it's going to be more so than saying, well, I want to start reading my Bible. Let's start with the book of Amos. I love the book of Amos, one of the most beautiful passages in the Word of God. I preach through it here in the pulpit. But you'd be a lot better served if you're not familiar with the Bible. Start with the Gospels. 
Start with the book of Genesis and start it. Start chapter one. Just start reading it, man. Start with some of the historical books, of the Old Testament. I told this individual, start reading some of the narrative portions of the word of God. Another thing I told him was this. Don't 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 get frustrated when you don't understand everything. You don't have to understand everything. Just strive to understand something. Uh, you're going to have questions. I'll let you in on something after uh, just a few hot minutes of studying the Bible myself. I still happen to have questions. And there's things that I do not understand in the Word of God, things that I probably won't understand until I get to heaven. Uh, but I paired with that counsel, this counsel. When you read, try to understand something and ask God to show you something about your life. Lord, apply it to me. Apply it to my life. Apply it to my heart. Teach me and speak to me, Lord, through your word. A third piece of advice that I gave this individual, and then we'll get into the preaching. This is going to sound a little strange to some of y'all, but don't be intimidated. So what do you mean, preacher? I remember one time years ago, and I'm not a mechanic. Do not come to me to fix your car. I do not know how to fix your car. I don't know how to fix my car. You understand? But occasionally, need and demand necessitates that I turn a wrench on something. And uh, I happen to have a brother-in-law who knows a little bit about cars. And uh, he's been doing it for 20 years. How, I, you're old now, probably like 60 years now. And he's been doing it for a lot of years. And I remember a conversation me and him had years ago, and we were talking about fixing something on a car. And he looked at me. This has always stuck with me. He said, it's all nuts and bolts. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it doesn't matter what it is. It's Japanese, German, American. It's all nuts and bolts. And he said, if you can learn how to take it off, you can learn how to put it back on. Now, let me give this disclaimer. Do not take anything off your car and tell anyone the preacher told you to do it. You understand? But what he was saying is you got to get over the intimidation factor of doing it. And I would tell you this when you read the word of God. Understand it's the very inspired, preserved, inerrant, authoritative words of God. We should approach it with an attitude of reverence in regards to our humility and submission to it. But don't read your Bible and not expect to understand it. Read your Bible and expect to understand it. There'll be things you don't understand, but approach it with the expectation. I don't know if you realize this. This is a revelation, not a mystery. It is a revelation of the mind of God. It's not a puzzle book. It's, it, it, it's, it's not, you don't need a decoder ring. Instead, approach it and say, I anticipate understanding. You'd be amazed how much you do understand when you read the Word of God if you quit telling yourself you don't understand it when you read the Word of God. And so I would say, try to get over the intimidation factor. Always stand in awe of the purity of his word. Always stand humbled by the authority of it. But God went to great lengths, including the giving of his own son, so that we could draw close to it. And so when you read it, read it as God's love letter to humanity. That's what it is. And, and read it and expect to understand it. When we come to 2 Timothy chapter number 2, Paul is giving simple practical but profound counsel to a young preacher about how he he is to approach the preeminent responsibility of a pastor. And I will tell you the, the, the chief loyalty and fidelity of a pastor is to the labor of the word. A pastor ought to love his people. A pastor ought to go and visit and, and, and encourage people and bless people. And I, I've done things in 12 years pastoring and I've scratched my head and I've thought, boy, they don't tell you when you're getting into it that this is what pastoring is. But the, the chief and preeminent work is the laboring in the word. 
And so Paul wants Timothy to understand how to study the Bible. And I want to try to give you a few principles on rightly dividing the word of truth as you study in your own personal time with the Lord. Notice with me, first off, verse number 15. This is probably the most familiar of all these verses that we've read. Paul says this, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In this simple verse, Paul gives us the principles of dividing the word. We're going to talk about what that means to divide the word here in a moment. But how we handle the word of God. More is at stake than you could ever imagine related to how you handle the Bible. There's people whose marriages are in shambles because they mishandled the Bible. There's Listen, there's people whose kids are on a pathway to hell because they mishandled the Bible. There's churches that are nothing but just, uh, you know, uh, museums of past memories of glory and of grace because of how some pastor mishandled the Word of God. So how you handle the Bible will determine the course of your life. Notice three things about this. Number one, he deals with the purpose of studying the Bible. That's a really fair uh, thought and fair statement and fair point for Paul to make. Why do we study the Bible? What is our goal in studying the Bible? Well, is it to educate ourselves? No, not necessarily. Is it the purpose that we might somehow transcend our current state of being and become a superstar Christian? No, not necessarily. Why do we study the Bible? So we can be smarter than the person next to us. No, we can just go to Walmart and experience that. Why do we study the Word of God? Well, notice it does two things. First off, he says this. Study to show thyself approved. That's an interesting word, approved. It means for something to be certified or tested. It's used historically with the idea of testing the the uh, quality and testing the veracity of coinage. Now, we don't really have this now anymore because everything's fiat money and everything's fake and everything's broke and money ain't worth nothing. But for a long time in human history, they would have to regularly test the integrity of their coinage. One of the interesting things, if you study back through history, a vicious cycle that would always happen is you can take a kingdom, for instance, in, in like ancient, like Roman Britain, uh, you know, places like that. You could take some uh, kingdom and, and they would have a certain currency that they would have cast in a particular precious metal. Most of the time it was silver. And then they, uh, a new king would arise and he would begin spending into oblivion. Because one of the ways to get you people to like you is to pay for things for them and to give them things. And pretty soon, their currency would be worth nothing. And so here's what they'd do. They'd start recasting and putting cheaper metals into their coinage so that there would be a vaster supply of it. So pretty soon, people caught on to this. This, by the way, ended with a lot of folks getting their heads chopped off. But they would begin to understand they're devaluing our currency. It's not worth what it used to be worth. Can I say this? Part of the reason we study the Word of God is to prove ourselves. It's to test our life, the integrity of it. I'll tell you this. If the metric of testing your life is social media, don't waste your time. You're awesome. I just saved you. All the time that you would have spent on it. You're awesome. You're amazing. You've never done anything wrong. You can do no wrong. And in fact, everyone else is just mean-spirited when they criticize you. There. I just gave you Facebook. You ready? There you have it. You can stick it in your pocket. But if you want an honest assessment of your life, you're going to have to go to the Word of God to get it. 
It's like a man beholding his face in a natural glass and looking at his image. And so the word of God, it it proves us. It gives some semblance and some baseline and some standard against which our life can be measured that's objective, that's immutable, that's unchanging, that's eternal, that will never change and that we can trust in its integrity. So the purpose is to prove us. But then there's a second thing, and that's to please him. Study to show thyself approved. What does he say? Unto God. In other words, the reason I study the Bible is in order to please the Lord. Now, there's two applications we could make of that. One is this. Studying the Bible pleases the Lord. I'm going to say that again. Studying the Bible pleases the Lord. There is this eternal and passionate pursuit of some way to get God's attention in our society today. Can I tell you a quick shortcut? Study your Bible. God's pleased with it. But then there is another reason we study our Bible that we might adjust our life such that it will please him, that we might be well pleasing in his sight. So the reason we study the Bible is that we might personally work on our walk with Christ, that we might live a life that is more aligned with the truth of his word and that is more well pleasing in his sight. If you're studying the Bible for any other reason, you're studying it for the wrong reason. If you just have a simple intellectual fascination with the Bible, that's the wrong reason to study it. If you're studying it so you can have some ammunition to lob at people that may have some opinion about your life, you're studying it for the wrong reason. If you're studying it that you might stand on a pedestal of education and feel somehow superior to those that are less educated around you, you're studying it for the wrong reason. The reason you study it is that your life might be examined in a proper light that you can adjust it and make it right before the God of glory, the God whose you are, that God. So he deals with the purpose of studying. But then he deals with the product of studying. He says this, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Now, this is a figure of speech. Paul liked figures of speech. The Lord Jesus did, too. The Gospels are are, are chock full of figures of speech. And Paul was a workman himself. He was a tent maker. And if you think that's an easy thing, you ought to study all that it took for a man to be a tent maker at that time. They wasn't Betsy Ross sitting around, you know, sewing a flag. I mean, it was there was a lot of work and labor and arduous investment that went into. And so Paul has spent his life, though he's an educated man, he spent his life around craftsmen. And he's reminded of the meticulous labor and work and attention and investment that goes into a craftsman working on their project. And so he reveals two things here. Number one, he reveals there's an expression that our work gives. Man, and we don't have it in this world today. I was talking to someone the other day about how everything breaks. Everything breaks. While you've been in here, something on your car is broken. Nobody even there to touch it. Something broke. Right now at home, some of y'all, somebody's water heater went out at the house right now while we've been sitting here. Somebody's dishwasher just, just, just tore up. And we just live in a society where quality and workmanship, craftsmanship are completely thrown out the window. Man, how can we print it and press it and, 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 and how can we just plastic mold and inject it and shove it out the window and get $40 with free shipping and move on to the next thing? So much so that we have lost sight of what a commentary, a finished product is on the character of the craftsman that made it. You can study craftsmanship and one of the things you notice immediately is you'll look at it and think, man, somebody cared about what they were doing. Somebody labored. 
Somebody took time for somebody good enough, wasn't good enough. They wanted it to be the best that it could be. And I will tell you this, that your opinion and perspective on God and his word can be directly measured by the way in which you handle it. There's an expression to our work, how we study the Bible. If we just do it intermittently, just hit a lick at it occasionally, if we're willing to take it and warp it, ignore the context of it, try to take it and bend it till it squeals or breaks to our will and to serve our purposes, we obviously feel that way about the God that wrote it. And we feel as though he is a cosmic butler that should be somehow harnessed and yoked up to our ambitions and to our desires and merely driven with a whip to give us the product that we're looking for. But when a person approaches the word of God and says, no, this is more important than I am. Let me just say this. I don't know if it's ever been said, so I'm going to make sure it gets said tonight. This is more important than I am. I'm the pastor of the church. I, 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 I like being that. All right. I ain't looking to give it up to nobody else. All right. But I will go ahead and tell you, this is more important than I am. This is more. If I ever get away from this, just throw me out in the parking lot and keep this because this is more important than I am. By the way, this is more important than you are. It is. I don't mean that in a snotty way. I'm not being I'm not being a smart aleck. I'm just telling you this is more important than you are. And you in your life, you should you should recognize that your handling of it is a direct commentary on your opinion of God. But not not only that, it says this a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. You know when the workman gets ashamed when his work is scrutinized. Have you ever seen something built or done? Some of y'all do construction. I know you've done this. You ever looked and, and thought, what was going through their head when they did this? You ever looked at it and thought, boy, somebody didn't care. And there in that moment, you look at it, you scrutinize it, and you say that simply does not pass the standard that should have been applied. Can I tell you, one day there's going to be an examination of the work we've done with this book. We're going to give an account for it, man. You're going to be judged for your doctrine. I'm going to say that again. You're going to be judged for your doctrine. You're going to be judged for what you believe. You're going to be judged for what you spread, what you share, what you tell, what you teach. You're going to be judged by that one day. And I will too. I shudder when I say that because I've probably preached a lot more than you ever have. But I want you to understand that we're going to give an account one day. And we better be handling it in a careful manner because of that. So I see the product of our studying. And then I see the process of it. He says this, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, that is so familiar to us that we lose the impact of what's being said there. And there are passages all through the word of God that we've just familiarity has robbed us of the of the significance and poignancy and profundity of. it. And when we read that rightly dividing the word of truth, we go, oh, yeah, that means studying the Bible. But why does it mean studying the Bible? What is Paul communicating when he uses that phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth? I would say there's two things here. One is that we should handle it competently. It's interesting how he says that, rightly dividing. It means to dissect. But not just to dissect and do a hack job, but it means to dissect with straight cuts. You've heard me say this before. I'm a dispensationalist. And being a dispensationalist means being a biblicist because the Bible is a dispensational book. And I say that without any, you know, hesitancy and and. But to define what dispensationalism is, it is recognizing that God has dealt with humanity in different ways at different times throughout human history. And that doesn't mean that everything changed during those shifts, but it means some things changed. 
And it is recognizing those differences, those distinctions, those divisions when they happen and respecting them as you study the word of God. In fact, if I was to give you a simple definition of dispensationalism, it would be just that. Acknowledging and respecting the divisions that God has has provided in his work. Uh, we said just a little while ago about these divisions on a Wednesday night that there were three of them that if you get wrong, it will mess everything up in your theology. One was the distinction between Jew and Gentile. If you dismiss that, your theology is going to go off the rails. Another is the distinction between the rapture and the glorious appearing. If you don't recognize that distinction and respect it as you study the word of God, your theology is going to get all messed up. And another distinction, though it's not necessarily a dispensational one, it is a distinction, is the distinction between positional truth and practical truth. That There's a difference between the way God, in light of Calvary, has chosen to treat me and how I literally live and behave on a day-to-day basis. And so as a dispensationalist, it immediately resonates to me That studying the word of God is a matter of digging into it and recognizing and seeing the mechanics, the distinctions of what God has done in his dealings with humanity. But it's interesting that it also carries the idea of dissecting with straight cuts, not cutting around a pattern, not taking a scroll saw to it, but taking a bandsaw to it, taking a table saw to it. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I'm saying this. You don't. Start to make a cut and then go, that kind of touches on my life and make a left hand turn and go around that portion. You don't start going through this way and say, well, you know, if I that sure messes up my little pet theology that I thought I had worked out, I'm going to take a right turn and I'm going to move around that. No, it is instead taking the standard and basis of truth, applying it to the revelation of God and letting the word of God illuminate and inform you as to what is true. So I would say this, it's to handle it competently. But then there's a second thing here. The Bible says this, rightly dividing what? The word of truth. To handle it confidently. One of the things I love about the Bible, this is going to sound funny to say, uh, I love that it's perfect. I love that it's perfect. I love that I don't have to read it and wonder, is that what it should have said? I don't have to read it and wonder to myself, well, now I wonder what it really means. No, it's the word of truth. I don't have to read it and wonder, well, is that just the author's perspective? I can say, no, this is the word of truth. And therein I can do two things. One, I can submit myself to its authority. I don't have to be afraid of it. I don't, there's no part of this Bible. There's people around this part of the country, man, they're terrified of the book of Revelation. They don't even, they don't even, they, they've done took it out of their Bibles. They don't think. I mean, they, listen, they won't even, I, I, I mean, they, how <laughs> oh, my soul. Uh, they're terrified of it. I mean, they, they won't even, they won't go down to the stockyard afraid they might see a white horse. They're terrified of it. Terrified of it. And, uh, I don't have to be scared of the book of Revelation. It's the Word of God. I don't have to be scared of it. I'm not scared of Ephesians 1. We can rightly divide the Word of Truth. Without it turning into us, into some predeterminist, fatalist, finalist Calvinist. No, there's a right application of Ephesians chapter 1. We've taught it around here. And so I can approach this Bible confidently, knowing that there's no mixture of error anywhere in it. It is the pure, unadulterated, unmitigated revelation and word and words of God. And I don't have to be scared of any portion of it. 
So he deals here with the principles of dividing the word. But then verse 16, and I, I love this about the Bible. It don't just tell us what to do. It tells us what not to do. It don't just tell us good things. It tells us bad things. It says this, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker. So he's given us the principles of dividing the word, but now he gives us the pitfalls of departing the word. And he mentions a few things here. The first thing he deals with is the consumption of dangerous content. How does he define that? He calls it this, profane and vain babblings. You see, our problem is not that we don't have a Bible. We have a Bible. Our problem is all the things we try to scab on and inject into that Bible. Sometimes that can be in regards to just trying to, through a theologian would call it eisegesis, read our own interpretation and perspective into the Bible. And sometimes it's through external and extraneous content, shaping and molding and coloring our perspective on it. But I will tell you this, that we, we have to be dangerous or we have to be careful about anything outside of this book. Anything outside of this book is apt to lead you astray. And it's not to say it's all wrong. It's not to say that it's all untrue. But it's to say that there is a distinct and marked difference between what's in this book and what's outside this book. You can dig in, man. You can jump in. You can wade around in it like Scrooge McDuck jumping in that big swimming pool of gold coins. You can just, I mean, you can waller around in the Word of God. You don't have to fear it. But when you step outside of this book, you've stepped into a danger zone. What kind of stuff is he talking about? Well, he talks about two categories. One, he talks about profane imagination. He says shun profane things. Now, we define profane as as something that is vile or lewd. We think of something, and we most often associate that word profane with the idea of profanity, right? And we think of that as like barnyard language or, or, or dirty language, profanity. But the word profane does not necessarily mean something lewd. The word profane, just like the word vulgar, it simply means something common or base. Let me give you a a clearer definition. Something that is profane is something that is not hallowed. Something that is hallowed is the property, proprietarily speaking, of God. It is separate, distinct. It is not common, but it is hallowed. A profane thing is anything outside of the scope of what God is and has produced. We could use this common modern term, secular, secular. Let me give another term to you, extra scriptural, extra scriptural. He says this, shun those extra scriptural things, shun those things that aren't biblical, shun those things that aren't. Hey, I'm I hope you came ready for me to not just preach, but pastor a little bit. Can I pastor a little bit tonight? That'd be all right. Just a little bit. And I'm just telling you, hey, listen, personal experience is not Bible. Anecdotal evidence is not Bible. I'm not saying everybody's experience is wrong. I'm just saying it's not Bible. History. History is not is not Bible. See, here's what I want to know. I want to know what's biblical. What's biblical. 
When you begin to traffic in people's personal experiences, when you begin to traffic in anecdotal evidence, when you begin to traffic in, in, in human intellectual pursuits, when you begin to traffic in those things, you have veered out of that which is biblical and safe and wholesome and divine and inerrant and into the realm and territory of that which is malleable, that which is often deceitful, that which is often its own self-deceived. And so here's what he says. He just says, just shun that. You know what our position needs to be as believers? Be, you know, somebody will come and say, hey, listen, this experience that I have, we need to say, I want to know what the Bible says. Amen. Well, you know, I, I heard this latest teacher. Is it biblical? Is it biblical? That needs to be our immediate response. Is it biblical? Is it Bible? Does it line up with the word of God? If it doesn't, shun it. Shun it. Just say, no, I'm not interested in that. I would say this. He deals with profane imagination. And by the way, profane things are imagination. They're the product of human experience and human imagination. But then he deals with this, not just profane things, but he talks about vain things. Profane, and he says, vain babblings. You know what vain means? It means empty. You know what babbling means, right? It means incoherent or unintelligible or non-beneficial, unhelpful, unmeaningful. And he, let me put it this way, not just profane imagination, but pointless speculation. Pointless speculation. And uh, I remember years ago, somebody was asking me the other day why we don't do questions in our Sunday school class, questions and answers. I know the adult class does that sometimes. They're more spiritual than we are. We used to do that years ago. And I found that every week I was talking about, uh, every week I was talking about Adam's belly button. I was talking about dinosaurs. I was talking about giants. And that's all we ever talked about. I mean, you know, and so pretty soon, for us at least, we jettisoned that and just took more of a lecture model. I'm not against questions by any means, but I will tell you this, that often that which excites and enamors the human imagination is not that which glorifies God. And so our perspective, hey, listen, there's all kinds of what-if theology. Hey, what-if, man, what-if? What-if, man, what if Adam had eight toes? I don't know. What if he did? I listen. I mean, what, what if, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, what if, what if this happened? What if at one time, you know, uh, people rode dinosaurs? I don't know. Where were you at three weeks ago on Sunday? What if, what if theology? And I will tell you that what if theology, a lot of people have gotten enamored and obsessed with. It's become a cottage industry. Could this have happened? I don't know. All kinds of things could have happened. How's that helping you? How's that teaching you the Bible? And so he, he, he warns us against the danger, consumption of dangerous content. But then he goes further. Now, here's the problem. We think all it's going to do is waste our time. But that's not the case. The Bible says this, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. He talks about the corruption of dangerous content. You know, part of the reason that that sensationalist movements are so carnal They're never working on anybody's holiness. And so here's the problem. When your study of the word of God devolves into merely a speculative intellectual pursuit, you're not doing serious business and work with God. And so notice how it says it. It'll increase unto more ungodliness. You say, well, preacher, more ungodliness. Where did the first ungodliness come from? It's in you. It's in me. There's an ungodliness that needs to be dealt with. And that's what the word of God does. If we neglect that faithful application of the word of God to our lives, all that's going to happen is we're going to get more ungodly. 
And you will find often is the case that the more sensational a movement is, the more prone it is to carnality and iniquity, to lasciviousness and loose living. You say, well, preacher, it'd waste a bunch of time. No, it can do more than that. It can literally stunt your development as a believer. You'll spend all your time trying to suss out the secret code, and in the midst of it all, your walk with Christ will get shipwrecked. He deals with the corruption of dangerous content, but then he deals with the corrosion of it. He says this, their word will eat as doth a canker. It's interesting, you think about a canker. Uh, it's talking about an open sore or something, uh, a form of gangrene, and it talks about it eating away. And the idea behind it being that it's never content and never satisfied. It's just always eating away and eating away and eating away. And here's the problem. When you begin to traffic in extra scriptural things, the devil use that as an opportunity to use you as prey and to, to begin to eat away your fidelity, loyalty, and adherence to the truth of the word of God. I can't tell you how many times, and, and this is the old, this is the old grifter's trick. Somebody will come along and claim to have some new revelation. Man, I got a new thing, a new thing, a new thing. And, uh, they'll come along and, and then they'll say this, well, why didn't your pastor, why won't your pastor talk about this? Well, maybe because it's stupid and it's a waste of time. That might be why your pastor won't talk about it. Well, why won't your pastor deal with these things? And very often they're trying to undermine the trust that you have with your pastor, with your man of God. And very often, I remember hearing a person say years ago who's trafficking in this kind of talk, and he said, don't even go talk to your pastor about it. Just get out of that church as quick as you can. Isn't that interesting? Wonder whose ministry they want that person to get into. Wonder who they want them signing a check to. Uh, I'm just telling you this. It don't just leave you in a static condition. It will erode and corrode your walk with Christ. He said, preacher, I don't believe it. Well, Paul knew you wouldn't. He knew how you are. And so notice this, we see the product of denying the word. And I'll touch on this and be done. He says, their word will eat as doth a canker. It'll erode away your faith, your walk with Christ, everything. You'll just become obsessed with the next rumor, the next fantasy, the next sensational perspective. You'll lose all reverence for the truth, the word of God. And then he says this, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth of error, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. He deals with the product of denying the word. And he names names. He mentions two individuals. And he says, look at their life and look at where they're at today. In other words, this is not a theoretical problem. This is a real practical problem. Real people who have departed from from orthodox biblical faith and have gone into all sorts of sensational superstition that at one time walked in truth and are no longer doing so. He mentions three things here. Number one, he notes that their error was notorious. People they could name and people that they knew. Man, I could give you example after example. I could give you names. I could. I could, Ken. I could. I might let you. That way you'll get all the heat instead of me. Hey, Greg Locke. Amen. Anybody know who Greg Locke is? I hope you don't. Good. God bless you. That's wonderful. He used to claim to be sound. And now he's got into this pseudo charismatic business and nonsense. And very likely he was always a hireling. You'd see him grifting on Fox News and trafficking in politics and all kinds of stuff. And, and now he's gone full tilt into the charismatic movement. 
I'm talking about pastors in Middle Tennessee. I mean, I could talk about there used to be a guy named Craig Edwards. Most of y'all don't know who he is. He used to be sound, he used to be solid. Now, all of a sudden, man, I mean, just completely out there. I mean, listen, uh, anybody heard from Phil Kidd anytime soon? You ain't going to find him at a Baptist church. He took Baptist off of his church. I, I was never necessarily the biggest Phil Kidd fan in the first place, but there was a time he would have claimed to walk in truth and orthodoxy. I, I could let, hey, I could talk about other things. Hey, anybody didn't been down to the, to the Danny Glorious Way, uh, you know, uh, amusement park ride? That used to be Danny Baptist Church. Yeah. Right down the road. Right down the road. Used to be a Baptist church. Used to be an independent Baptist church. Phil Murphy died. His son took over. They went and had some experience somewhere. Come back tongue talking. And full tilt in the charismatic movement. Took Baptist off the name. And now there's some kind of glory experience. I don't even know what that mess is supposed to mean. So what are you getting at preacher? You're being mean. You're trying to stir up. You're being No. I'm trying to get you to understand that people that you know used to walk in truth began to traffic in this stuff and it messed them up. You say, it wouldn't be me. It could be you. You think you're better than them? I'm not better than them. It could be me. Doesn't matter who it is. So he's dealing with real world people that have gone this path. He notes that their error was notorious. Then number two, he deals with the fact that their error was serious. You say, oh, preacher, they just don't see things your way. That makes you mad. You want everybody. No. Look what he says. Who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already. Yeah. You say, well, why is that important? Well, read 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah. Read, re- listen, read First and Second Thessalonians and tell me that don't affect your doctrine. Yeah. They had spiritualized the concept of the resurrection, denying the bodily resurrection, which, by the way, was something that you can trace all the way back to origin and, and all the way back to the, to the Alexandrian school of thought in ancient Egypt. And you can go back and find where the, where the, uh, the, the Gnostics at that time were having to gut any real meaning from the bodily physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus so they could traffic in their poison. And these people, I mean, they weren't just all oh, preacher. They just have different music than us. First off, music matters. But even beyond that, it ain't they just had different music. I'm talking about they rejected the notion that Christ physically rose from the dead. And they claimed that he had already, it had already passed. And, and so there was no resurrection of the saints. They're preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying it ain't always just, and this is part of the propaganda of the enemy and part of the propaganda of our, our wicked world. They want to take anybody that stands on truth and then turn around and say, well, they're just jealous. I don't want what that crowd has. I'm content with what God's doing. I don't want, I don't want my name in lights. I don't want any of that garbage. I don't listen. They can have their Learjet. I don't like to fly anyway. I, I don't want any of that mess. What I want is for God's people to stand on truth. That's what's paramount. That's what matters. But they always want to gaslight all of society into believing that anyone that that stands on truth must be some hate monger. I'm just telling you this. Hey, listen, I ain't changed. I ain't the one that's changed. It's them that have changed. And often in serious ways. So, listen, their error was serious. But you say, well, preacher, that happens to some. But. But it wouldn't happen to me. Look what Paul says here. This is interesting. He says this. And overthrow the faith of some. Overthrow it. Topple it. Throw it over in the ditch. Lay it low. The preacher, did they really do it? Well, it's interesting. If you were to go back 
and read Paul's first epistle to Timothy, listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest by them war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You say, preacher, what happened? You can believe anything you want, but I believe that Alexander probably learned his lesson. I believe Hymenius probably didn't, and I believe he went out somewhere and found Philetus. They're always looking to spread. It's amazing. They're always looking to find a little group and find a little party of people that they can get over by themselves and begin to pour their thoughts into and pour their doctrine into. And I'll tell you this, false teachers, they're not content to just sit back and rest on their error. They want to traffic in it. They want other people to listen to it. They want other people to believe it as well because it affirms them in their error. And so we would say this, their error was contagious. It didn't just stay confined to them, but they would go out and seek other people whose faith to overthrow. They knew they were trafficking in error. Don't give them, don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't credit them good faith. They know, they know what they're doing. Uh, They understand, they know how to pull the buttons and the levers and turn the knobs and and ramp up the emotions and traffic in that stuff. They know how to get the smoke machine dialed just right and have that baseline hit at just the right moment and get the lights flashing in just the right way to induce emotional response from people. Don't treat them like they don't know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And their intention is to draw people in to try to profit and prey upon them. Preacher, what's all this getting at? It's getting at this. You ought to be studying the Bible. You ought to be studying it in the right way. You ought to be going, the Bible should be your authority for faith and practice. You say, Preacher, are you saying we shouldn't never read a book? No, I got all kinds of books. I, I got tons of books. I got a library. It's got books. It's got books everywhere. There's books here and there's books there. And I got tons of books. If my house ever goes up, son, she's going to go up in flames because I got books everywhere. You say, Preacher, uh, what advice are you giving? I'm saying this, no book is like this book. You, you can believe this or not, but I find myself the farther I go in ministry, the less of those books I'm reading. I ain't mad at them or about them. And, that, and, and uh, you know, 95% of what's on my bookshelf wouldn't hurt anybody. Wouldn't hurt anybody. And it's not that necessarily they're bad. I just, I can't. It's not the word of truth. This is the word of truth. And I find that as I dig in and just immerse myself in the authority and truth of God's word, God speaks to the heart of his people and God directs them and God guides them. And I find myself less and less needing those outside voices. And that's a good thing because you can't always trust those outside voices. But you can always trust this book. Let me tell you something. A preacher don't get up and preach this kind of a message because he's in a bad mood. A preacher don't get up and preach this kind of a message because he's looking to flex or have some authority. A preacher gets up and preaches this message because I love you people. And I want your life to be right and, and in line with the truth of the word of God and safeguarded against what the enemy desires to do in your life and to you. And I, I don't believe any of us is above it. We could all go down a path of error. We need to recognize the danger of it. And we need to commit ourselves to the faithful, consistent study of the Bible. You'd be amazed what God will do in your life. Let's bow together. A musician's going to come and play. And the altar is open. 
I, I, me and the Lord talked about it before I got here tonight. I don't know what to expect out of this invitation, but I want you to have liberty if God dealt with you about something in your life. And it could be a matter of, of faithfulness to the study of his word. It could be a matter of, of consistency in studying his word. It could be a matter of purity and leaning upon his word. I don't know what God may have spoken to you about, but whatever it is, I know there'd be a reason for it. So would you meet him in this altar? Let him have his will and way in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name.